The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. This is the end of our Zambuli lands. From here I walk alone. Please, don't go. I must go. This city is a place of evil. I've never visited one in my life. But you know, I must go there to warn the king. Are you sure he is in danger? One is sure of nothing. But I had the vision again last night. I saw him lying in his own blood. Our lungs destroyed by a strange flame. The heart torn from our sacred mountain of Gujara. This cannot be. Who would kill such a good king? An enemy. One who takes without asking. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, June 29th, 2017. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color color into black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be alright Now last week we opened the Pandora's box of political definitions and positions and only really covered the political polarities of left and right about which more must yet be said before we move on to the more nuanced epistemological issues that rule politics. Some of those issues were addressed on Facebook posts we received about last week's topic of left and right, and that's where we'll pick up the conversation again this week, right after I keep out of trouble by reminding everyone that they can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave, visit us at www.justrightmedia.org, where you can access all of Just Right's social media links, including Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and of course, all of Just Right's past broadcasts. Now, following last week's show, we received quite a bit of response and commentary. All of it refreshingly positive and of value. You know, even some of the comments that may not quite have shared our entire premise, but I plan to share some of those comments with you, but not before also summarizing and reviewing the basic point to which these people were responding. Because in traditional scales and diagrams illustrating the political spectrum, most people have been taught that the gradients from left to right look like the illustration that we put on our home page, which you can see on last week's show. And it just shows left and right communism, fascism on the right, communism on the left, and then the gradient of radical, liberal, centrist, conservative, reactionary, which have been the traditional labels used in that spectrum. Now, both in theory and in practice, these ideological representations are incorrect, yet they continue to be taught in our schools and used as a standard method of contrasting the political spectrum. And glaringly absent, of course, from traditional political diagrams like that one, are freedom and capitalism. Now, since by definition left and right are intended to be polar opposites, keep that in mind, a more accurate, simple, and useful representation of the political polarities would be simple, left and right. On the left, tyranny. On the right, freedom. Very simple. Well, here are some of the initial responses we got from our listeners and people posting on Facebook. 
First one from Frank Zed, quote, Yes, I think this is finally making some headway, as it makes it easy to place any governmental or political ideology on the spectrum based upon the size and amount of intervention in society and, and in the economy. The current political spectrum is obviously a false dichotomy. The extreme left and extreme right are essentially totalitarian. I would venture to say that since no one using the current spectrum really understands what communism and fascism are, they falsely call each other these names. Essentially, they both want to establish a totalitarian regime and thus struggle for power and control. Since no totalitarian regime can exist in the same area as another, they end up at war. I would go so far as to blame the structure of the political spectrum for much of the strife in the world. Neither of the two forms of tyranny are defending themselves. They are struggling for power. Freedom would only fight to, f to fend off tyranny in defense, and if the people understood that, they would never agree to go to war over a power struggle between different forms of totalitarianism. This new concept of totalitarianism versus freedom is a correct dichotomy and needs to be spread near and wide and adopted in our higher institutions of education. Otherwise, the people are left with the, the choice of which tyranny they prefer to live under. Thank you so much for helping to expose this tragic misnomer. Uh, just as an added thought, he says, I would go so far as to say the current political spectrum was intentionally designed out of Marxist dialectical materialism, the synthesis being some form of socialist world government. Martin B. writes, You have a point, but I would go further and say that most of the misery since human civilization began is caused by some people wanting stuff for free whether it's a thief, tyrant, con man, religious leader, or your lazy in-laws, all strife comes from someone taking or demanding stuff that doesn't belong to them, i.e. the unearned, which kind of speaks to our opener today, doesn't it? And then Michael J. tunes in and he says, this is a basic tactic used in propaganda. They must first distort the true meaning of words that have been part of the traditional lexicon to conceal the truth. Neoconservatism is fascism. As Mussolini said, quote, fascism is the merger of capitalism and government, end quote. Now, you know, the idea of fascism being the merger of capitalism and government, that's, that's a contradiction in terms, of course, but after all, Mussolini said it. Then there's Kurt F., who wrote, well, y'all are probably going to laugh at me for putting this out there, but whenever you start banding about terms like centrist, communist, fascist, left, right, etc., then you yourselves are perpetuating the ideology that human beings can indeed be stuffed into neat little boxes that accommodate our own perceptions at our own convenience. I'm afraid, however, that humans are just a little more complex than these intermediary psych evaluations. Take me, for example. I'm a happily married man who loves musicals. I'm also a classically trained pianist who loves guns and archery. I like to cook, I enjoy carpentry, I appreciate the aesthetic beauty of good landscaping, and I once beat the living crap out of a bully with a smile on my face. Contradictory behavioral patterns? You bet. Unusual? Not at all. We're all made of sterner stuff than labels or preconceived ideals. My point is that regardless of what we're being told, we're all brothers and sisters in the end. There's no need for name-calling or finger-pointing. Why identify yourself with one hate-filled side or another? Why should you even take sides? No human being has a side apart from good. We must do the best we can. Live in love, that's all. 
Unless we're talking about ISIS, of course. Nuke those guys into the stratosphere. Okay. <laughs> you know, Kurt, you're correct that humans are complex, but that complexity does not extend outside the context of any given conversation or focus of attention. We're talking about politics and philosophy here. We weren't talking about cooking, archery, carpentry, or any of those things. And, and none of those interests are contradictory. You can have ten interests. There's nothing contradictory about them. They're not even related to each other you know, as interests. However, I'm sure that when you're cooking, you're not shooting arrows into the food. These two activities are totally separate from each other. The terms relate to the political spectrum, not to musical talents or to landscaping. The terms were originally created and chosen by those to whom they applied. Each of those terms does have an objective meaning. The meaning applies to the ideas associated with the term. Any single individual who identifies as both on the left and right is a person who's living with a contradiction, which means that either one or both of his or her identified political labels is simply incorrect. No need for name-calling or finger-pointing? Well, it's not name-calling to correctly identify an idea and or the person who proudly holds it. My point is quite the opposite. It is absolutely essential that we identify those ideas that are so destructive to humanity and which are beneficial to humanity. People who want to violate your individual rights and freedoms should have more fingers pointed at them, not less. They should have guns pointed at them, for heaven's sakes. Their ideas are far more destructive and dangerous than mere bullets. Finally, when Kurt concludes that we should live in love, but that we should nuke ISIS into the stratosphere, I think he's kind of contradicting everything he just said. ISIS is philosophically no different than any communist, socialist, or fascist, just further down the necessary path of violence that these ideologies are all based upon and demand. So if you want to avoid having to nuke these evil ideas in the future, now is the time to identify both the ideas and those who hold them. Now, labels are useful if they can be made to stick to a consistent set of principles defining that label. If the meaning of the label keeps changing, or if the label means something completely different to different people, then the label is worse than useless. It actually becomes a problem and an impediment. I don't think I've ever said this before, but an important thing needs to be said about the traditionally understood left-right spectrum with communism on the left and fascism on the right. I know we've picked the hell out of it, but there's a reason it existed. Until the emergence of freedom and capitalism, which like left and right were not called that until long after their established identities, there was nothing else. That was the political spectrum. And until freedom emerged as a political possibility in the real world, that traditional left-right spectrum, with only communism and fascism being the two alternatives, was in effect the actual spectrum within which the world operated prior to capitalism's discovery, which, which explains why nobody knew anything different. Freedom and capitalism are, historically speaking, very recent developments, discoveries, coincidental with all of mankind's great strides forward. Until those conditions of freedom and capitalism were largely realized and achieved to a degree never before achieved in history, the advancement of science, technology, medicine, and so many other things that we take for granted as if they had always existed would never have happened. Remember, capitalism and freedom were not invented, which is a distinct property of the left. They were discovered, as are all things real and right. And you can put 
the process of discovery, the process itself, on the right. Because in order to discover something, even an idea, you must first be willing to explore it, which is something not even entertained by the left. They're not interested in ideas right or wrong. They want what they want. In fact, all ideas and facts are not relevant to the left. The left has wants, it has needs, it has agendas that provide them with their wants and needs at the expense of others. That's the formula. You know, robbing Peters to pay the Pauls is no system of enlightenment or morality. It is the true law of the jungle, a place where force rules supreme. Freedom and capitalism is a system that prohibits the use of force in human relationships, and to call the economically competitive and free environment of capitalism the law of the jungle is so outrageous, an example of projecting socialism's method of operation onto its you know, opposite, that you have to know this is simply evil seeking to disguise itself from the good. And finally, we heard from Lyle G., who gave a very interesting analogy about left and right. He said, in my view, there isn't a right in terms of the American political spectrum. Uh, and he gave a movie theater analogy, and it goes like this. A few of us decide to see the movie in a particular cinema each Saturday. On our first arrival, we choose seats as best we can, seeking eye level centered on the screen. Obviously, we won't all squeeze into one seat, but we cluster around this agreed-upon central position. Later, some of us begin choosing seats closer to the left side of the cinema. Those of us keeping our original seats are still in the center, but not on the right. Only by accepting a false middle between all of our new seats can the originalists be seen as right. In reality, none of us are on the right. Some remain centered. Everyone else is on the left. There isn't a right, end quote. That's actually a pretty good analogy, Lyle. I, I think it's excellent. But I have to tell you, when I read it, I had this image come into my mind that I just have to share with you now. <laughs> as soon as I started reading it, I could not help but think of the hauntingly similar scene that you just described that took place in the Big Bang Theory when Sheldon was testing the theater's audio acoustics, forget this, to find just the right seat. Hi, Sheldon. Hi, Stephanie. I'm sorry I'm late, but your companion left the most indecipherable invitation. <laughs> what invitation? We're going to the movies. What movie? What theater? What time? <laughs> if you were trying to make it impossible to locate you, you couldn't have done a better job. Oh, clearly I could have. <laughs> it took me nearly 20 minutes to go through the browser history on your computer to see what movie times you looked up. Wait here, I'll find us seats. Oh, no, we have seats. Not the right seats. Ha! <laughs> ah. What is he doing? He's finding the acoustic sweet spot. Ha! <laughs> ah. <laughs> My apologies, you've been sitting in it all along. <laughs> Leonard, you want to slide over one? No, just sit here. This is it. It's coming. Here? No, you will sit here. 
You here? Please lower the lights. And the window must be open exactly four inches. Under my guidance, he will return to what he was before reincarnation, an American of the last century, a man who talks freely with the shade of the great Bismarck. Otto. You will prepare yourself. The entry of the prince is sometimes violent. Otto! <laughs> what, Otto? Otto, you old horse thief. <laughs> Is here? Yes. Now they will talk. What are they talking about? Family, friends, the weather. <laughs> Do you think they can hold on to Paris, Otto? Could you possibly suggest that the prince look at my plan? I think he is doing it now. You think what, Otto? You think that's a plan? You wouldn't change an item. It'll never work. Never. I don't care if you were Chancellor of Germany. What have you done recently? <laughs> what did you call me, Otto? What? All right. Put him up, Otto! You are awake. You will return. Guard them well, General. Remarkable that Bismarck would talk to him. Why wouldn't he talk to me? Germany was one of the world's first truly modern socialistic nations, which is partly why it was practically first in line to have precipitated both the First and Second World Wars. Notes Kevin Williamson in his book, The Politically Incorrect Guide to Socialism. Quote, Bismarck was no socialist in the sense that he did not advocate the public ownership of capital, the suppression of private property, the establishment of a classless society, or any of the other fundamental goals that socialism purports to pursue. Bismarck called his philosophy, such as it was, real politic, which we might render in English as pragmatism. It was real politic and not romantic socialism that thereby led to the establishment of Europe's first major welfare state, as Bismarck oversaw the creation of a social insurance program, a health insurance entitlement, old age pension, disability benefits, and restrictive labor laws. There's a perfect formula for bankruptcy. Bismarck's calculating real politic caught the attention of another group of political visionaries, the progressives. The idea that the American progressive agenda and the agenda of the Obama administration in particular is part and parcel of a coordinated worldwide socialist program is a joke to everyone but the socialists themselves, continues Williamson. And of course, this speaks to a problem on the right, the fact that so many right-thinking people do not take socialists and socialism seriously because it seems so stupid to them and they're right. And, and so they don't take arms against their oppressors, not realizing that Stupid is as stupid does. They'll do it if it's being done. Interestingly, although the book is written as a guide to socialism, this comment on capitalism and on Ayn Rand appeared on page 21. And I quote, Ayn Rand's followers, who are some of the most energetic defenders of capitalism in the world, call themselves objectivists. But in truth, capitalism assumes a radical subjectivism in the marketplace. 
the real objective economic value of things is identical to how people subjectively value them, end quote. Well, the way I interpret that is, therefore, it's objective. <laughs> Objectivists, though, are moral defenders of capitalism, not economic defenders. You know, there's nothing to defend in economics. Supply and demand. End of story. What's to defend? You either believe in it, that it should be free so you can get the accurate information, or you believe it should be controlled. And that's not economics anymore. However, Williamson continues with the following. Quote, capitalism's approach is to answer economic questions economically. The theory is not normative. It has nothing to say about whether people should value goods and services in the way they do. Socialism breaks with capitalism on precisely this issue. It seeks to infuse the fundamental deep processes of the economy, the setting of prices, with moral meaning. It is one of history's great ironies that capitalists built decent and humane societies on the basis of an amoral approach to the economics of pricing, whereas socialists built exploitative and inhumane societies on the basis of a morality. End quote. Now, this is so wrong in so many ways. Again, capitalism is not an economic system. Neither is socialism, okay? They're both moral systems. It's a moral system of governance. And the freedom to allow prices to reflect the true value of things is the result of a morality that bars force from economic relationships. How much more moral can you get than that? Yet economist-minded folks take this morality for granted. You know, in the same way as socialists and communists take production for granted. Socialism is not a moral system, it is an immoral system, and that immorality is the cause of socialism's continual failures. The Oxford Concise Dictionary of Politics, which we referred to last week, defines capitalism as a term denoting a distinct form of social organization based on generalized commodity production in which there is private ownership and or control of the means of production. The word capitalism, it writes, is a relative latecomer in social science, with the OED citing its first use in 1854 and the word capitalist in 1792. Originally popularized by Marxist writers, Marx preferred to speak of the capitalist mode of production or bourgeois society. It is a term which has increasingly gained credence across the political spectrum, although this has inevitably produced inconsistency in its employment. For most analysts, mid to late 19th century Britain is seen as the apothesis of the laissez-faire phase of capitalism, which took off in Britain in the 1840s with the repeal of the Corn Laws and the Navigation Acts and the passing of the Banking Act. In line with the teachings of classical political economic uh, theory, Adam Smith and David Ricardo, the state adopted a liberal form which encouraged competition and fostered the development of self-regulating markets. Liberal and conservative thinkers alike have been keen to identify this particular phase of capitalism with the essence of capitalism itself. This has encouraged some theorists to dispense with the term completely when describing societies in the post-1945 period. Hence, during the post-war long boom from 1950 to 79, an explosion of terms, industrial society, post-industrial society, welfare statism, post-capitalist society, threatened to displace the centrality of the concept of capitalism.
end quote. Now, the quote-unquote some theorists that are referred to here are liberal and conservative theorists of the left, okay, whose every bone in their body is terrified of the word capitalism and what it truly means. The dispensing of using that word was done purposely to obliterate a concept and thereby kill the very idea of capitalism as a possibility. In fact, this idea was one of the key reasons that Ayn Rand published Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal. In that book, Rand made it utterly clear that capitalism is a moral system under which the use of force in human relationships is banned. Hello! It was, it was only when societies approached that condition of morality that anything like an industrial society, post or otherwise, could come into being. To continue the, the definition, quote, the waves of economic and political crises experienced since this period, the post-capitalist period, however, led many commentators to reinstate the term, particularly under the influence of the new right, Hayek and Friedman. Since the extension of the franchise in the 19th century Britain, there has been a hotly contested debate on the relationship between democracy and capitalism. The experience of the 20th century, however, shows that there are a variety of political forms, liberal democratic, social democratic, fascist, statist, republican, monarchical, which can accompany capitalist economies. This constitutes the basis for the study of the state in capitalism. <laughs> but that's from the Oxford Concise Dictionary. Remember, they're confusing in capitalism with capitalists, okay? We, we've, we've gone through this issue before. None of these things are necessarily coincidental with or opposed to capitalism as a business practice, not as a system of government or as a system of, of morality. And this is the problem with all talk about capitalism. They forget the system that it, capitalism requires to survive, and that's freedom, isn't it? Now here's what they say about socialism, the same dictionary, Oxford Concise Dictionary. A political and economic theory or system of social organization based on collective or state ownership of the means of production, distribution, and exchange. Like capitalism, it takes many and diverse forms. And to which I have to say again, only the political forms may be different. The philosophy and principles are always the same. Collective or state ownership requires and demands the violation of individual rights. You know, the prohibition of, of private ownership. The initiation of the use of force it requires. The creation of false and unenforceable group rights. And all of the other evils associated with poverty, war, pestilence, and tyranny since as far back as history is able to record. <laughs> and here, here he goes on, socialism in the West, Western world entered a new phase of crises and uncertainty in the 1980s and 1990s as the welfare state has found itself under increasing economic pressure and as social democratic methods of Keynesian economic management fell victim to alternative neoliberal and new right theories. Now you see, they're saying that socialism collapsed because people chose alternatives. No, it, it collapsed if the alternatives <laughs> didn't exist at all. They chose the alternatives because socialism collapsed. The collapse of Marxist socialism in the Soviet Empire in 1989 and the failures of many third world socialist regimes, he concludes, have added further uncertainty. It's interesting, the um, Oxford Concise Dictionary of Politics also had definitions for something they called the new left and the new right which really weren't much different from the old ones except in the way that they're being applied today. The new right philosophy can be found in the works of Hayek and American economist Milton Friedman. Well, 
those are economics. It's not about right or left. Right or left is about politics. And always these definitions refer to economists as though economists are philosophers, as if the economists are all about determining what is right and wrong in moral decisions. And th this is just so bizarre. The lack of firm definitions regarding left and right are not about the left or right. It's about the inconsistency in the various people throughout history who have held often similar grand philosophies in common, but only differed relative to each other. Production is always the missing element in all non-capitalist uh, ideologies. Production of goods and services is always taken for granted, and the only problem remaining in the minds of the left is the issue of redistribution, of course. But the thing to realize is production is not a separate process from distribution. Production and distribution are part of one and the same action in the greater economic sense. I mean, if I can't distribute what I produce to those who are willing and able to buy that production from me, then, then I've got to stop producing or I'll be wasting my time. Now, I'd like to believe that the left only really wants to redistribute goods and services, you know, to help the poor and help alleviate their poverty. But it's just not true. The left creates poverty. All the poverty that we can afford to pay for, and I'm not joking when I say that, it's in the history of nations worldwide. Now, what conservatives cannot do, and this is why they are not on the right, is defend rationality, reason, freedom, or capitalism. They do not do that. They always talk economics, which explains all the libertarian encroachments on conservatism. You know, and liberals accept any BS that expands the state. You know, CO2 is their latest BS story. Heat causes CO2, not the reverse, folks. But why capitalist ideals fall on barren ground in non-capitalist political parties, even conservative ones, um, is, is the fact that their standard of the good is altruism and the greatest good for the greatest number. Now, it's a bit premature at this point in the show to comment on what we're about to hear next. It's from the Rocky and Bullwinkle cartoon series, one of the show's regular segments called Aesop and Son. You know, there's more going on here than might at first meet the ear. <laughs> Words of wisdom are food for the mind, right, Junior? Right, Pop. All right, then. Is your head hungry? Famished. Good. Open wide and I'll feed it. You ready? Shoot. It is one thing to propose, but quite another thing to execute. That, my boy, is a very wise saying. Feel smarter now? No. Yeah, I thought so. No, what do you mean, no? I don't understand what it means. It means easier said than done. Simple? Yeah, but I still don't get it. Well, then I shall tell you the story of the mice who bell the cat. That'll explain everything. For years, the mice had been living in constant fear of their archenemy, the cat. Never did they have a moment's rest, for the cat would ambush them, chase them, jump up and down on them, and toy with them every chance he got. Finally, the poor little mice could stand it no longer, and they called a meeting to see what could be done about their dreadful situation. Something's got to be done. Look, I already got a gray hair. And I'm a nervous wreck. The whole trouble is that cat's too quiet. He's always pussyfooting around. We can never hear him coming until it's too late. Many plans were discussed and rejected. Then at last, a young mouse named Murphy got up and proposed. Oh, why don't we just hang a bell around the cat's neck? Then we could always hear him coming in time to make a getaway. Murphy's plan was very well received, and it was immediately put to a vote. 
All those in favor of Murphy's idea, say aye. Aye. Now, being it, it's Murphy's idea. All those in favor of letting Murphy bell the cat, say aye. Aye. Aye, aye, aye. Nay, nay. But the ayes had it, and Murphy was elected. Good luck, Murphy. Anything you'd like to say before you go? Yes. I got a big mouth. Having no choice but to at least try, Murphy set out to find the cat, which, as he feared, was no trouble at all. What have we here? Uh, would you believe me if I told you that I'm a beaver? What do you think? I think you think I'm a mouse. That is correct, food. And Murphy was forced to flee for his life, narrowly escaping capture by ducking through a hole in a fence inches ahead of the cat. Oh, that was a close one. If I ever expect to get this bell on that monster, I'll have to think up some way to trick him. Reasoning that his task should be quite simple, if only he could put the cat to sleep, Murphy quietly crept up behind the cat and ever so softly whispered into his ear. Rock-a-bye, pussy, in the treetop. When the wind blows, the cradle will rock. <laughs> oh, boy! It worked, but just to make sure, are you asleep, cat? What do you think, food? I think I goofed. That is correct! And again, Murphy had to run for his life. This time, I'll take a more direct action. I'll knock him cold. Then he can't play tricks on me. And boldly walking right up to the cat, Murphy hit him with all his might. Well, hello there, food. Oh, what a shame. You broke your bat. So I did. How do you feel? Oh, I got a slight headache, but other than that, just fine. Would you consider giving me a five-minute head start? What do you think? I think it's out of the question. That is correct. Now, Murphy was not a mouse to give up easily, and striking on a plan with which to outsmart the cat, he carefully put the collar with the bell into a box, wrapped it as a gift, and then placed it where the cat would be sure to see it. Mm. Toothy nice cat from a friend. Oh, boy! A collar with a little bell on it! Oh, just what I've always wanted! The cat quickly put it on and was overjoyed with his new gift. <laughs> tingling, tingling! <laughs> it worked! Never again will he be able to sneak up without us hearing him. Ha! Oh, he's coming now. <laughs> he won't fool me this time. He's coming from that direction, and he's getting closer and closer. Now I can get ready to run because he's right. Whoops. Ice cream, ice cream. Get you nice ice cream right here, ice cream. Well, well, what do you know? Well, if that's the ice cream man, what happened to the cat? Uh, what do you think? I think this is the biggest boo-boo I've made yet. That is correct. <laughs> and so you can see, after all was said and done, more was actually said than done. You understand now, Junior? I sure do, Pop. The moral of the story is that if you're full with bells, you're apt to get told off. Huh? Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's one way to put it, yes. <laughs> you're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. 
Thank you to all of our financial supporters who've made it possible for us to continue on our journey in the right direction and to share our programming with the world. Visit www.justrightmedia.org to offer your financial support. And while you're there, sample some of our timeless past broadcasts, all archived for your listening convenience. Well, if you fool with bells, you're likely to get told off. (laughs) Well, now I know where I get some of my sick puns from. But you can't argue with the wisdom that if you express an opinion in politics, you have to be prepared to be told off. And not only are some things easier said than done, Murphy the Mouse discovered that those who propose what should be done are often the only ones around to act on the proposal, right? Democracy in action. Those who do the work and carry the burden must also suffer the criticisms and insults of those for whom they are doing so. And in the end, even though successful at belling the cat, unintended consequences resulted, including poor Murphy's demise. Because they thought they had solved the problem of belling the cat, the mice stopped being eternally vigilant against the danger, believing that any time they heard a bell, the cat would be near. But unfortunately, another identity was using a bell. And this caused the mice to look in the wrong direction for safety. Sound like a familiar situation? It's the same thing in politics when left and right are mistaken for each other. If the term identity politics were ever to have any objective meaning, this might be it. Which brings me to our next demonstration of the importance of understanding the philosophic battle between those who operate under a primacy of consciousness versus those who operate under a primacy of existence. Identity politics is, of course, a leftist form of subjectivism, and if anything should convince you of the dangers of placing the primacy of consciousness above that of existence, Murphy the Mouse just demonstrated it. Did you notice that when confronted by the cat, What did the mouse say? What did Murphy say? He asked, would you believe me if I told you that I'm a beaver? What do you think, asks the cat. I think you think I'm a mouse, replies Murphy. That is correct, emphasizes the cat. Food. (laughs) So I guess identity politics was one trick that did not work in attempting to fool the cat. However, if Murphy the Mouse had confronted a Canadian politician and not a cartoon cat, he could easily have gotten away with calling himself a beaver. After all, on top of the identity politics, the beaver is one of Canada's national symbols. What could any good, neutral-blooded Canadian politician say? (laughs) But it seems to be working quite okay for one Canadian man, if indeed I'm permitted to refer to him as such. And this is from the June 24th Canadian Press. Bid made for non-binary birth certificate relating to a court case in St. John's, Newfoundland, where a transgender activist vying for a non-binary birth certificate is taking legal action against the Newfoundland and Labrador government as part of an effort to have a gender other than male and female formerly recognized on such documents. Gemma Hickey has filed an application with the province's Supreme Court in St. John's, challenging the change of sex designation provision of the Vital Statistics Act, saying it is unconstitutional and violates provincial and federal human rights legislation. I have a responsibility to myself as a person and to others like me because we essentially are erased. 
we don't have any way to identify to show that we exist. It's a human rights issue, said Hickey in a phone interview Friday. I would like my birth certificate to include how I identify. That would make me feel more fulfilled as a person and give me that legitimacy that I don't have now. Wow. (laughs) But the article continues, Non-binary means the person does not identify as male or female. Hickey applied for a non-binary birth certificate in April and is believed to be the first in Canada to do so. The case will be in Newfoundland and Labrador Supreme Court on July 28th to set a date. The application argues the Vital Statistics Act is, quote, unduly onerous and discriminatory because it pathologizes gender identity, deviance, and diversity, end quote. Hickey has taken testosterone and is transmasculine but identifies as non-binary. Having to choose between male and female is discriminatory, said Hickey, and has led to uncomfortable situations. Geez, isn't that nice? He gets to choose. The rest of us don't. We don't have this problem. How's that happen? So getting the choice is the problem. I guess we shouldn't give him a choice, and he'd be like the rest of us. Wow, you know, he has a choice, and he thinks he's the one being discriminated against. <laughs> Quote, when I go away and travel, they see my name is Gemma, and that there's a Ms. in front of it, and that leads to some embarrassing situations, said Hickey, who also runs a foundation to help survivors of sexual abuse. Well, I would say to Hickey, don't put an MS in front of your name. I never put an MR in front of my name, and I consider myself one. Hickey's lawyer, Brittany Whalen, said she will reference Bill C-16 during the July hearing, end quote. This person, Gemma Hickey, I don't know if he pronounces it Gemma, is either a leftist plant being used to destroy reality and reason through the court system or is a very deeply disturbed and selfish person in the bad sense of that word. He wants to, quote, feel more fulfilled as a person, end quote. This is not accomplished by denying one's personhood and making it official on a government document, particularly birth certificates, passports, and other official documents that are actually created not for the person holding them, but for other people to identify them with, for heaven's sakes. This isn't about what's in your head. This is about what we need to know about you, and I don't care what's in your head. So we'll take a closer look at this in a few moments. But first, here's a question for you. Is the concept of a non-binary birth certificate and sexual identity an idea of the left or an idea of the right? And most importantly, why is it left or right? You know, there's only two ways of looking at reality. You either accept the primacy of existence or you escape the reality of existence by resorting to the primacy of consciousness. Now, both of these refer to the philosophical way in which an individual regards reality. The left operates on the primacy of consciousness, the right on the primacy of existence. Again, I'm talking about the true right, and always remember that 90% of today's right wing is completely on the left in terms of political orientation. Now, we briefly discussed these two axiomatic concepts last week. You know, the primacy of consciousness means that the person who thinks that way believes that reality is formed by that person's beliefs and perceptions, not by the evidence of his senses applied to an external reality outside that belief system. Consciousness over existence. Now, the primacy of of existence holds that existence exists and continues to exist irrespective of who's around to experience it. You know, why is militant Islam on the left? 
because they believe in this promise of an afterlife in which one will receive some kind of reward. I mean, that's completely dependent upon thinking that places consciousness above existence. Because one truly believes it, it must be real, right? Religious societies, to the extent that, that they are truly religious, tend to drift leftward. Look at the Catholic countries and look at the Islamic countries. You can't get away from it. That's where you're going to go when you make consciousness the primary thing and not existence. You know, people of common sense and reason find it extraordinarily difficult to believe or accept that so many people actually think and operate on a primacy of consciousness I've just described. They think it's just plain nutty, and it is in a way, so they dismiss it, but don't. Do not underestimate the lengths to which evil resorts on every level. The more totalitarian and tyrannical a nation, the more mystical, religious, and superstitious its people or government are. You know, Hitler and the Nazis were famous for their outrageous mystical beliefs. Everything from having fortunes told to seances, I mean, you name it. It is difficult for a rational person to accept this. Now, what is being called identity politics is merely the latest tactic to destroy reason and reality, and hence the human mind's ability to think for itself. So what we're going to listen to now is College Kids Say the Darnest Things. This was published on April 13th and viewed over two million times and published by the Family Policy Institute of Washington, who visited the campus of the University of Washington to see if students would affirm or reject Joseph Blackholm's new chosen identity, a six-foot-five-inch Chinese woman, even though he is no such thing. you got to hear this. There's been a lot of talk about identity lately, but how far does it go, and is it possible to be wrong? We went to the University of Washington to find out. Are you aware of the debate happening in Washington State around um, the ability to access bathrooms, locker rooms, spas based on gender identity and gender expression? I, I think people should be able to have access to the facility. I think uh, bathrooms could and potentially should be gender neutral because there doesn't need to be a classification for differences. I think people definitely should have the ability to go into whichever locker room they want. Uh, I feel like at least public universities should do their best to accommodate for those who do not have a specific uh, gender identity. You know, whether you identify as male or female and whether your sex at birth is matching to that, you should be able to utilize the resources. So if I told you that I was a woman, what would your response be? Good for you. Okay. Like, <laughs> yeah. Nice to meet you. I'll be like, what? <laughs> really? I don't have a problem with it. I'd ask you how you came to that conclusion. If I told you that I was Chinese, what would your response be? I mean, I might be a little surprised, but I would say, good for you. Like, yeah, be who you are. <laughs> I would maybe think you had some Chinese ancestor. I would ask you how you similarly came to that conclusion and why you came to that conclusion. Um, I would have a lot of questions just because on the outside, I would assume that you're a white man. If I told you that I was seven years old, what would your response be? Um, I wouldn't believe that immediately. Uh, I probably wouldn't believe it, but I mean, I it wouldn't really bother me that much to go out of my way and tell you no, you're wrong. I'd just be like, oh, okay, he wants to say he's seven years old. If you feel seven at heart, then, <laughs> then so be it. Yeah, good for you. <laughs> Thank you.
So if I wanted to enroll in a first grade class, do you think I should be allowed to? Uh, probably not, I guess. I mean, unless you haven't completed first grade up to this point and for some reason need to do that now. If that's where you feel like mentally you should be, then I feel like there are communities that would accept you for that. I would say so long as you're not hindering society and you're not causing harm to other people, I feel like that should be an okay thing. If I told you I'm six feet, five inches, what would you say? That I would question. Why? <laughs> because you're not. <laughs> no, I don't think you're six foot five. If you truly believed you're six five, I don't think it's harmful. I think it's fine if you believe that. It doesn't matter to me if you think you're taller than you are. <laughs> so you'd be willing to tell me I'm wrong? I wouldn't tell you you're wrong. No, but I say that um, I don't think that you are. I feel like that's not my place as like another human to say someone is wrong or to draw lines or boundaries. No, I mean, I wouldn't just go like, oh, you're wrong. Like, that's wrong to believe in it. Because, I mean, again, it doesn't really bother me what you want to think about your height or anything. So I can be a Chinese woman. You... <laughs> um, sure. But I can't be a six foot five Chinese woman. If you thoroughly debated me or explained why you felt that you were six foot five, uh, I feel like I would be very open to saying that you were six foot five or Chinese or a woman. It shouldn't be hard to tell a five nine white guy that he's not a six foot five Chinese woman, but clearly it is. Why? What does that say about our culture? And what does that say about our ability to answer the questions that actually are difficult? If you stand for nothing, you will fall for anything, were the closing words on the screen accompanying the comments you just heard. And that, of course, was from the Family Policies Institute of Washington. Back on April 19th of last year, Paul McKeever, in his, in his, on his own blog site, and of course Paul is the leader of the Freedom Party of Ontario, all this, although this doesn't have anything directly to do with that, speaks about the whole issue of gender and the particular story we just heard. Paul writes in his April 19th column, which is headed, The Emperor Has No Womb. And he writes that the big lie is that gender identity is about gender. As the video demonstrates with on-campus interviews of university students, the big truth is that the political battle about who gets to use the women's washroom is just the thin edge of a wedge in what is actually a war over metaphysics which means reality, of course, a war started by the proponents of social metaphysics, a war against rational thought, free choice, and individual freedom. Specifically, gender identity is about getting people to trump reality with delusional beliefs about what is real. In technical, philosophical terms, it is a war to replace, in everyone's mind, the primacy of existence with the primacy of consciousness. I congratulate back home on recording evidence of students unwilling to call things as they literally see them. However, let me answer his concluding question. It's not a matter of anyone's ability to answer questions. It is about one's willingness to do so, but more fundamentally, it is about one's willingness to let another person's opinions or feelings take precedence over reality, as that reality is perceived by one's own five senses. 
Once they accept that inversion, once they accept that another person's self-identification determines what that person is, once they adopt the political stance of, who am I to say that another person is wrong about their own identity, they are vulnerable to the next logical step in the assault on reality reason and reason. Specifically, if another person's beliefs dictate what you believe about their identity, you are primed to accept that another person's beliefs dictate what you believe about your own identity. And once you concede that, you're ripe for any form of tyranny. If you value your freedom, you must be prepared and willing to declare openly, calmly, and defiantly, says Paul, that the emperor has no womb. <laughs> Just consider some of the most simple of implications that would arise from the misguided viewpoints expressed by those college students. I think people should have access to the facility, speaking about washrooms, says one person. If, now, if these are private, single washrooms, it's a non-issue, isn't it? It's only in a case where you're talking about a public washroom with many people in it at one time that such an issue or a question would, would arise. So to me, I have to assume that's what they're talking about. Bathrooms should be gender neutral because there doesn't need to be a classification for differences, says one person. Well, not for gender, perhaps, but for sex, definitely. I think people should have the ability to go whichever locker room they want, says one of the students. Holy cow, does he really believe that? What about people who want their privacy? What about people who feel differently? No room for them, no tolerance for them. They can't say no to the violation of their beliefs on privacy. Freedom of association also includes the right not to associate with those you choose not to associate with. But these gender warriors don't agree with that. Here's one. Whether you identify as male or female and whether your sex at birth is matching to that, you should be able to utilize the resources. Now, I know that young lady was referring to the washrooms, but is she really saying that men should be able to use the women's washroom, really? And whether or not, you know, they identify with their sexuality, what's that got to do with it? Got to, nothing to do with anything. What if somebody's non-sexual, doesn't even think about their sex? How does that change anything? It doesn't. The identities all remain the same. <laughs> whether, whether the guy is a woman or Chinese, you know, some have questions. Um, accepting that he is seven years old even, I mean, come on. If you feel seven at heart, then good for you. <laughs> uh, can you enroll in a first grade class? Well, if that's where you feel mentally, I feel that there are communities that would accept that, says one young lady. But you know what implied in that statement is, but not my community and not me. <laughs> there are other communities that would accept it. <clears throat> So long as you're not hindering society and you're not causing harm to other people, I feel that should be an okay thing, says one person, very libertarian-like. I mean, that, that's almost a libertarian philosophy. Never mind reality and reason, but as long as you're not hurting anybody and nobody's bothering anybody, the rest doesn't matter. If you believe that, then the rest isn't going to continue to be that way anymore. You're not going to have that freedom to make all those subjective decisions says one person, if you truly believe that you're 6'5", I don't think it's harmful. It's fine. It doesn't matter to me. It's not my place to tell you you're wrong, says another person. Another human to say to someone is wrong, to draw lines or boundaries? Oh my goodness, that's horrible. But you know what? That's exactly what definitions and words are all about. To draw lines and boundaries so you know that this is one thing and that's another thing. It's about identity. It's not the politics. It's about identity, the philosophy. 
it doesn't really bother me what you think about your height or whether you think you're Chinese, etc., as one person. It is interesting how the students at the University of Washington viewed the gender identity issue and other issues of definition as being a personal one. You know, it's a personal issue. As being about how they felt about someone else's irrationality. As if words themselves were meaningless. Or even numbers, for that matter, when it came to measuring height. Folks, these are absolutes. These things are absolutes. They're not variables. Once we determine a definition or that a number represents a certain value, that is an absolute. It does not vary. These students were openly afraid to label an irrational statement or belief as being such. Partially due to youth, I get that. But the students also seem not to care about the condition of the person who thinks, like, he's a beaver, <laughs> okay? For example, not caring about how harmful that belief might be to the believer himself. Maybe that's why we ignore the whole Mideast, because we don't care. They're hurting themselves, right? Until they start bugging us, that's when we get involved. That's when it matters what they believe. Of course, what to the students appeared to be a mere discussion about personal preferences, particularly in regards to gender, was really about politics, right? <laughs> Specifically, it's about a leftist ideological construct that dispenses with definitions, dispenses with ideas, facts, and all those other factors that deal with reality. And the damage is beginning to be quite visible. These kids all believe that they're unaffected by what others might believe about themselves. Yet we just heard some very real damage done to their own sense of certainty, of their own confidence, their connection with reality, and their ability to speak up for what they know is so. These kids are damaged. If that isn't extraordinary damage, I don't know what else is. You know, political systems and political ideologies are rarely discussed in the broader public forum or in the sense as you would hear them discussed on a show like this, like Just Right. In day-to-day -day living, in practice, the ideas and philosophies that drive the various political systems around the world are experienced just as a part of our life, right? Nothing, nothing unusual. Long lines in our hospital emergency departments, the growing plague of drug addiction, terrorism, Islam, high taxes, green energy, global warming, carbon taxes, and now gender wars, you know. These things are not normal. They're not just part of life. If you stand for nothing, you'll fall for anything, and we're falling for all of these things. In any case, for our part, we stand for the right, and we'll continue to do so again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color. Color into black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be alright Hey! I didn't know you went in for astrology I've heard Hitler's a big believer Mm-hmm, and Goering, and Himmler And now Klink, Germany's men of destiny <laughs> You all take from the same fellow, sir? Oh, Hogan Be cheaper, you get a group rate Hey, form a carpool, too, save on gas <laughs> Colonel Hogan I will not stand for any of your insubordination. Very cranky.
And his horoscope said he was going to have a good week. He takes that very seriously. Every night he goes to his astrologer. He told him that he might be promoted to general. Clink a general? Sure, and then there's the one about the three bears. Oh, Colonel Clink really believes in astrologers and fortune tellers. He said that some people are gifted, that they have a sixth sense. Yeah, I know how he feels. I used to be that way about fortune cookies, right up to my fourth birthday. 